Thank you, guys. It's great, great to have you all in, in worship. Hey, I want to begin with a couple of questions today, and I'd like to get everyone involved at all of our locations, at Half Moon and Greenbush. Now, if Saratoga, if you guys have the strength after Travers Weekend to raise your hand, I'd love for you to get guys to get involved too. Just two simple questions. They're not trick questions, just looking for an honest response, either raise your hand or, or not. So here's the first one. How many of you believe that it is generally all around easier, it was easier to be a Christian 30 years ago in the United States than it is today? If you believe that, it was easier 30 years ago to be a real Christian in the U.S. than it is today, just raise your hand up, okay? It's a lot of hands, a lot of hands. All right, second question and final one. How many of you believe, now you need to think about this one perhaps just a bit more, how many of you believe it was easier to be a Christian in Simon Peter's day? We're talking about the first century A.D. You believe it was easier to be a Christian in Simon Peter's day than it is today? If you believe that, would you raise your hand, please? All right. Not many hands, if any. All right. You know, there is a general consensus that at least in the United States, it is diff more difficult today to be a true follower of Jesus than it was some decades ago in this country. That's the general feeling. And whatever you feel about that personally, if you're feeling that you live in a hostile world that's hostile to your faith and, and it's difficult for you to follow Christ, maybe you have a family that's even against you and your faith. Maybe they critique you and criticize, I don't know. But there's a general feeling that's becoming a little tougher. And it certainly is tougher in various parts of our world today. We've been watching on TV the continuous reports every day of what's happening with the wonderful Christian people, the Yazidi people, they're a part of, of Kurdish descent in Iraq. And this militant group, ISIS, has been persecuting them and perpetrating the most horrendous atrocities, almost unspeakable. There have been throat slashings and hangings and, and shootings and, of course, crucifixions because... ISIS considers that to be a particularly humiliating way to die for Christians. And I hope you've been praying, as I have, for these wonderful Christian people that are liter literally being so persecuted that they're not only being displaced from their homes, but many are being executed, killed, for their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, some of you have ask how you can be involved. And I want to say a word to you about that in just a moment. But I want us to pause right now and pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq and Syria and in some of these more troubled parts of our world. Father, while we, many of us, have it so easy in this country and we're grateful, we pray for our dear brothers and sisters in Christ, people that we're going to be in heaven with one day, we ask that you would strengthen them, protect them. I pray that those who are going to help, whether it be military or relief agencies or people just trying to make a difference, I pray that you would speed their efforts, bless their efforts. I pray that 
Lord, the bloodshed would be so minimized that many, many lives would be spared. Lord, I pray that the aid, the food, and all the supplies would be able to get to them. And Lord, I pray that through all of this tragedy that your name would be honored and glorified. Help us to see practical ways that we can make a difference too in addition to upholding them in prayer. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you have wondered, how can I get involved? And I'm, I'm glad that you're asking that. Well, I, I would, there's a number of ways, but one of the ways, in addition to continuing in prayer, I would encourage you to maybe contact Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse is um, probably the top relief, Christian relief agency in the world. We have a long-standing relationship with them through friendships and through being involved with them in throughout the years, and they're highly credible, and they are there on the ground now in that region helping these people who are being displaced and so horribly persecuted. They, they always bring the Christian gospel, and they always bring needed relief from human suffering. So you can just Google them, go to their website, you can give and or seek other ways that you can get involved and make a difference. But Thank you for being concerned about our brothers and sisters around the world. But whatever's going on in your life today, Peter has a message for us in this book called 1 Peter that we're studying together. And today, we want to talk about how to live for God in a hostile world. And this is going to be an incredibly content-filled message. It's sort of like a primer on Christianity, really. But for those of you who may be new to the faith or window shopping Christianity, I just want you to know you're going to hear a lot of things today that are just foundational to what Christianity is really all about. So, Peter, first of all, says, if you're going through tough times, if you're suffering for Christ, this is going to sound a little strange, he says, suffer well. Now, some of you think, well, that's just a flippant statement. Rex, why would you say, suffer well? It seems a bit weird. Well, let me add some statements to try to clarify what we mean by that. First of all, by suffering well, we need to understand that suffering for righteousness is commendable. It's commendable in God's eyes. Look at what Peter writes in these verses. And who is there to harm you? if you prove zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Did you catch his words there? If you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, you may say, Pastor, I don't get it. What could possibly be good about suffering for Christ? What could possibly be Good about suffering for what's right? Great question. Great question. Well, here's something you'll notice if you carefully study Christianity throughout the 2,000 years of its existence. Wherever the church has had to struggle, wherever there's been persecution, generally speaking, there are a few exceptions, but generally speaking, 98, 99% of the cases, when there's persecution, the church flourishes. We could just give you example after example after example. In fact, it's so common that a statement has grown up. I bet you've heard. Here's the statement. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And wherever 
Christians have spilled their blood for the sake of Christ, for the sake of righteousness, generally Christianity has flourished. Why? Because people look at it and go, wow, it's real. Whoa, they're even willing to die for this. Back in the 1950s, when Jim Elliott and four other young missionaries were murdered by the Aka Indians in South America, guess what happened in the following months? Young people signing up and enlisting for the mission field tripled, tripled in the few months that followed that. What's going on? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. People say, wow, this is real. This is a cause worth giving my life for. This is something worth dying for. I want a reason for living beyond my workaday world. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That sounds almost strange to our American ears because the persecution we experience, although real, is so much less obvious and brutal usually than what our brothers and sisters are experiencing now in Iraq. But think of some of the godly people in the Bible that suffered for doing what is right. Joseph suffered for doing the right thing morally and not sleeping with Potiphar's wife. David suffered for doing his job well, but Saul became insanely jealous and persecuted David and, and chased him all around. Daniel suffered for doing a great job as a leader in Babylon and for praying three times a day, and for living his faith out boldly. He suffered for that. Paul suffered in the New Testament for not being a racist. When others would only extend the grace of God and give the gospel to Jewish people, Paul extended the gospel to Gentile people, and he suffered great persecution for that. So here's the bottom line. God says, are you suffering today? Suffer well, because you're in pretty good company. Second statement, be able to defend your faith. If you're going through hard times, if you're being persecuted, be able to defend what you believe and why you believe it. Look at this great verse, verse 15. It says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Other translations say gentleness and respect. Now, the word there translated make a defense is the Greek word apologia. We get the word apologetics from that. People hear the word apologetics, they think, oh no, we're apologizing for our faith. That's not what it means. Quite the opposite. We're defending the faith. We're giving a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. And it's important that we be able to do that when we're going through tough times. And here's why. Because suffering presents a unique opportunity to witness for Christ. It puts a spotlight on you, brothers and sisters, where people are going to be particularly interested in how you respond. Somebody once asked John F. Kennedy how he became a war hero. He said it was involuntary. Somebody sank my boat. 
And you never ask for persecution, do you? But when it comes, it gives you a prime opportunity to represent Jesus well when you're suffering. Think of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 in the city of Philippi. They'd been preaching the gospel. They were imprisoned for that. They were beaten severely. They were put not just in the dungeon, but in the inner dungeon in stocks and chains. And you know what happened if you read Acts 16? At midnight, they sang praises to God. You talk about representing Jesus well. That jailer had heard a lot of things come out of the inner dungeon, but he'd never heard songs of praise to God. He'd never heard hymns being sung. And about that time, about midnight, God brought a whole lot of shake into that prison. An earthquake happened. The doors of the prison were opened, and the jailer was about to commit suicide and kill himself because he knew the law. The rule was, if prisoners escape on your watch, your life is taken for theirs. He was about to take his own life. When Paul cried out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. He came rushing in and fell at their feet and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And that very night, that jailer and his whole house came to faith in Christ. You talk about representing Jesus well. Can I tell you something? Brothers and sisters, some of you right now are going through it. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. It's that medical report you got. It's that tough relational thing that's going on in your family. It's that stress and that pressure that's squeezing you on every side. And I want to tell you something. Whether you're aware of it or not, there are eyes looking at you. It may be the little eyes of your children in the home who are wondering, is this Christian thing real for mom and dad, or is it just a matter of convenience? It may be family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers. People are looking at you. They want to know, is this real for you? John Wooden is considered by many the greatest basketball coach to ever coach. He passed away a few years ago, a wonderful Christian man. Ten national division one men's basketball championships at UCLA. During the heat of battle, during a basketball game, when the stress was on, he would reach into his pocket and take out a little cross. And somebody asked him about that once. He would just hold that cross in his fingers. He said, what are, you, what are you doing? He said, well, this cross, it's not a good luck charm. That's not what it is to me. I take this cross out during the times when I'm most stressed out, and it's a reminder to me that there's something in life more important than basketball. Good word, John Wooden. Let me ask you, brother and sister, is there something in your life more important than sports and pleasure and leisure and money and even your own health? Is there anything? Persecution puts such a spotlight on you that you are able to bear witness for Christ in a way that is powerful. Be able to defend your faith. Third, Peter says, keep a clear conscience. Keep a clear conscience. Look at what he writes here. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing for what is right rather than 
for doing what is wrong. Now, the conscience is very misunderstood. People sometimes think the conscience is infallible, that it's the very voice of God. It is not. The Bible, I don't have time to get into this, but talks about numerous kinds of consciences, depending on what we've done to them. It talks about a weak conscience, where we're overly persnickety about certain things. It talks about an evil conscience that has been so trafficked in sin that it has literally turned evil. It talks about a seared conscience, which has been so repeatedly violated that it's become callous. It talks about a defiled conscience. Paul in Titus 1 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Jiminy Cricket was wrong. You can't always let your conscience be your guide. And here's why. Because the most important thing about a conscience is this. Are you listening? How has your conscience been trained? I've seen five-year-old kids who could curse like the proverbial sailor because they'd grown up in a household where all they heard was cursing and they thought there's nothing wrong with this. Their conscience had been wrongly trained. I've seen longtime church people who thought it was wrong to play cards on Sunday. I'm sorry, it's not. There's nothing inherently evil about that. But they thought it was because their conscience had been poorly trained. The question is, like a computer, how has it been programmed? That's the question about our conscience. And here, Peter says, look, you need to keep a good conscience. So, you're living for Christ in a hostile world? Living for God? Keep in mind, God has given you an amazing opportunity to witness well for Christ. The second major thing I want you to see here in this packed text is understand what Jesus has done for you. If you're going through suffering, you need to remind yourself early and often, look, Christ has done amazing things for me. First, He paid a once-for-all sacrifice. Look at what Peter writes. By the way, I would nominate this verse right along with John 3.16, probably the most popular verse in the Bible. I would nominate this verse as one of those top five or ten verses that capture the essence of the Christian faith. Here it is. Look at what it says. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just... For the unjust, who's who's the just? Jesus. Who's the unjust? Me. You. In order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus' death was a vicarious, atoning death. Don't worry about those big words. You can sum it up in four words. He died for us. That's the essence of Christianity. He died for us. And, of course, he rose again, and he is now enthroned the right hand of God the Father. We need to remind ourselves of that place of victory and what Jesus has done for us. But second, we need to understand he preached to the spirits in prison. The spirits in prison. 
One guy critiqued his preacher for preaching over people's heads. Over people's heads, he said. And the preacher got defensive from that criticism. He said, well, people ought to lift their heads up. And the guy said, well, Jesus said, feed my sheep, not feed my giraffes, okay? Now listen, brothers and sisters, there are some things in the Bible that are very easy to understand. We call that perspicuity. Here's what that means, that big word. A little child can read the Bible and understand how to be saved. That's the truth. I've seen it happen. A little child can pick up the Bible, and because of perspicuity, because the most important things of the Bible are so crystal clear, a child can understand, I can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Are you still listening? But not everything in the Bible is crystal clear. And we do people an injustice when we say to them that it is, because it's simply not. Now, I'd like to bust Peter's chops right here, if I could be so audacious. In the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 16, Peter talks about Paul's writings, and he says there, in them are some things hard to understand. Dude, you got a few things that are hard to understand, too, and right here, is one of them. There's at least a dozen different theories about what this could mean. I'm going to give you the three most prominent ones throughout history in just a moment, but let's look at what it says. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What in the world does that mean? All right. The three most common theories about that, and there's at least a dozen or more. You'll often, if you get a commentary on 1 Peter, you'll get more ink, more ink written on these verses than on the whole rest of the book put together. It's that weird and strange to commentators. One theory is that when it, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, it means that before his resurrection... By the way, those of you who grew up saying the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, a wonderful creed, the most popular Christian creed ever created, it summarizes what the faith is about. Remember that mysterious phrase you always said, and he, des he descended into hell? You remember that phrase? The this is where that comes from, by the way, this passage. And one other passage, Ephesians 4, which says he descended to the lower earthly regions is what it says there. Okay? First theory is that when he did that, as the Apostles' Creed and this passage in Ephesians 4 says, what he was doing is preaching good news to the people who lived before Noah's flood to give them a second chance at salvation. Now, I quickly want to add, there's not one shred of scriptural evidence to support that, I don't believe, but a few of the early church fathers tended to believe that, Okay? Second major theory that's been very popular, this one was very popular with a number of the reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and some of the Melanchthon and some of the other reformers, 
is that what this means, that he preached to the spirits in prison, is that Jesus was figuratively speaking, metaphorically speaking, he was preaching through Noah when Noah preached to the wicked people of his day. If you read Genesis 6 carefully, you'll see that as Noah was building the ark, he was a preacher of righteousness. We really get that from 2 Peter chapter 2, which calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Genesis 6 doesn't make it crystal clear, but 2 Peter 2 does. So what we get is the picture that at all time he's building the ark, Noah's preaching and he's warning people to flee from the wrath to come. Okay? And that, that's what that's a reference to. Jesus was figuratively preaching through Noah to the people of his day who were in bondage to, to sin and so on. And finally, third view, this is the most common one today among so many evangelical scholars, is that this is a reference to Jesus before his resurrection preaching to spirits who've been imprisoned. Uh, demonic spirits. It gets very complex, but they link a passage here, 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, he goes on to say, He'll not spare you either. It's, a, it's an ominous passage. And the belief is that Jesus went and preach to these spirits, not to give them some second chance or chance at salvation, but simply to declare what he had done at the cross and that his judgment is just. Some of you are going, wow, I tell you, yeah, it's not all clear, is it? Well, it, it's difficult at times, but thank God most of what's in the Bible is really easy to grasp. I love what Mark Twain said. Uh, what Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do understand, right? And there's so many things that are crystal clear that give us fits in our daily life because the challenge of obedience, all right? But you know what? That's not the most interesting thing about that passage we read. You know what the most interesting statement is to me? And corresponding to this, baptism now saves you. What in the world does that mean? What's going on here? How are we saved? I thought Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith. Isn't that the common message of the New Testament? Yes, it is. How are we saved? We're saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and by placing our faith in that. I believe that baptism, and the, the key here is that phrase that says corresponding to that. I think your NIV text says that water symbolizes that. What he's saying here is just as the ark saved Noah and the eight people on board, saved Noah from the judgment of the floodwaters, our faith in Christ through baptism, expressed in baptism, saves us. Now, I have some people read passages like this, and they get a little stuck on exactly when someone becomes a believer. Because they, they read in the New Testament, 
Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And that's true in the book of Acts. Over and over again, repent and be baptized. When do you actually become a real believer? Is it when you initially turn and repent? Is it when you confess your sins publicly? Is it when you're immersed in water in baptism? When are you actually saved? Well, I got another question for you. When is a person actually married? I've officiated a lot of weddings in my life. When is a person actually really married? What moment? Is it when they say, I do? Is it when the father gives away the bride? Is it when they exchange vows, exchange rings, and seal those vows as a token of their commitment? Is it when the officiant says, I pronounce you husband and wife? Is that when they're really married? Or is it when they sign the marriage documents? Is that when they're officially married? Or is it when they consummate the marriage later that night? When are they really married? I don't know. I just rejoice in a new relationship. And I would urge you not to get too caught up on the nitty-gritty of exactly when does someone truly come into new life in Christ. Just rejoice in a new relationship. But one final word before we quickly move on. Some of you ought to take baptism a lot more seriously. I'm going to be crystal clear, as clear as I can be. I personally do not believe that water baptism has a sacramental, salvific, saving value to it. Can I use any more big words? Come on. I don't believe that. I, don't, I believe it symbolizes what God has already done on the inside. But I want to tell you something, folks. If I'm serious about following Christ, I want to do everything he tells me to do. Some of you ought to make a beeline to the baptistry. Can I just be blunt with you? You ought to make a beeline to the baptistry. You've been putting that off way too long, and you've been waffling on that issue. You need to nail it down. Am I following Christ or not? Make it public, for goodness sakes. Put your life on the line. The Kurdish people are putting their lives on the line for Christ. Can't we get into a baptistry and get wet and declare, I belong to Jesus Christ? If you want to live for Christ in a hostile world, you need to remind yourself regularly of what Jesus has done for you. Remind yourself that he's gone even and preached, even and preached to the spirits in prison. He has done so much for you and me. And third, he's been resurrected and exalted. Look at what Peter said in verse 22. Who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, what is that a reference to? Jesus has gone into heaven. He's been exalted into heaven. What happened just before Jesus ascended into heaven. Don't blurt it out, but just in your mind, what, what happened? A number of things, right? But one of the statements he made to his disciples is this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You give me the legs of LeBron James, I, James, I can make any dunk. 
imaginable. You give me the hands of Jerry Rice, I want to tell you, I can make any catch the quarterback can throw. You give me the mind of Einstein, and I can unravel the mysteries of the universe. You give me the authority of Jesus Christ, and I can live in victory over every demonic spirit. Some of you are living below your kingdom privileges. You're letting the world and the flesh and the devil kick you around way too much. You're letting your emotions like a yo-yo be all over the place, up today, down tomorrow. You have the authority of Christ. He said, it's been given to me. And listen, he said, and I'm giving it to you. Go in my name. And as you go in my name, you're going in my authority. And that's what this verse is declaring. Verse 22 is declaring that he's got authority, all those angels and powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. But as we quickly just wrap up today, you know, this looks like a lot more. I'm just going to quickly hit these points because as we get into chapter 4, here's what he's basically saying, welcome your new lifestyle in Christ. He's speaking here to a number of Christians. Here's the context. Peter is speaking to a number of Christians who are brand new at this thing, and they're they're getting surprised by what's happening to them. And if you're a brand new Christian, I'll bet you can resonate with a lot of this stuff. Let's just quickly walk through these things. Look at what he says. Acknowledge the seriousness of sin. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Why? Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Here's the first part of welcoming your new lifestyle. Jesus Christ has not called you to sin management. He's called you to victory over sin. That's real important. Jesus has not called us just to become the best managers of our sin that we have, that we can, so we can kind of keep our image looking good and not get too down, you know. No, he's called us literally to cease from sin. He's called us, by his power, he's called us to live a, a victorious life. Second, recognize the nature of the conflict. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Are you still listening, Christian? For the rest of your life, there will be a battle waged every day, day in and day out. Here's the battle. Here's the battle. Here's what's at stake. Every day, you're going to have to battle. Am I going to do the will of God or not? And even as a Christian, even as one bought by the blood of Christ, even with the Holy Spirit changing you from the inside out, it's so easy to slip back into the lust, those desires of the flesh. They're contrary to God's will. So there's the battle. Every day, every day till the day you die, you will battle. Number three, be aware of the addictive potential of evil. We warn our children, we warn our children not to, not to try drugs. We say, just one try, you could be hooked. It's so addictive. And sin is much that way. Look at what he says here in verse 3. For the time already passed 
is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. And then Peter begins to stack up the words here to kind of describe that lifestyle. Look at, look at what he says. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Wow, what a list. Sin and slaves, and it leads us to a downward spiral. I know we're moving fast, but let's move on. Number four, as you welcome your new lifestyle, hey, get this loud and clear. Expect opposition from the world. Have you experienced it yet? New believers, have you experienced it yet? You will eventually. Verse 4, and in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. What a weird thing. Why would somebody malign you, speak badly about you, because you're not running with them into the same excess and just throwing your life away? It happens. Oh, dude, come on, we're going to get wasted tonight. Come on and join us. Don't sit around in this old dorm room. Hey, Bob, I notice you don't look at the pornography anymore with us, man. Come on. These babes are hot. Come on, Bob. Let, and they malign your character. And literally say, he's lost it, man. I don't know what this religion has done to him, but this, oh, he's a churchgoer now. Is it guilt that causes them to do it? I don't know. But they want to bring you into this downward spiral with them. And finally, as you welcome your new lifestyle, fear the judgment of God. Verse 5, but they shall give an account. <laughs> By the way, every time you see the wicked prosper, you could just put this as a tagline. Oh, he's getting wealthy off the poor. He's exploiting the poor. But they shall give an account. Well, he's ignoring God and thumbing his nose at but they shall give an account. Wow, he's getting away with murder right now. Well, but they shall give an account. Those are sobering words. They shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has, notice this now, for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So what's the bottom line today? I told you this was going to be packed with information. I apologize for moving so quickly, but there's no way. There's so much here in this passage, there's no way we can get it in unless we just skim the mountaintops of it. Brothers and sisters, I would say to you as we close, fear is not the best motivation for obeying God. Do you hear me? Fear is not the best motivation for obeying God. It ought to be love for God. It ought to be desire to do the right thing. It ought to be out of a sense of passion and compassion to want to represent Jesus well and bring others into the family of God. Fear is not the best motivation for obeying God. But are you listening? If nothing else will do it for you, if nothing else will work, let fear be your motivation. because we'll all stand before Almighty God one day. For those in Christ who've yielded their lives to him, that will be a blessed day. 
of commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. For those who've rejected Christ, that'll be an awesome day of terror. So is it harder to be a Christian today than it was 30 years ago? As you live for Christ, he's given you everything you need to live in victory. Father, thank you for your amazing word. It challenges us, stretches us, causes us to lift our heads. For everyone, including our brothers and sisters around the world, who find themselves today suffering for you, I pray, oh God, that you'd help them for you in the midst of a hostile world. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.